Amen. If you would, join me in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I'd invite you to gird up your loins this morning because we're going to be covering a lot of ground. Uh, normally I just have two or three pages of notes. Today I've got six. Uh, but, um, but that's okay. Uh, I edited out a few. So uh, here we are. Uh, 1 John chapter 4. I'll start reading at verse 7 and we'll read down through verse 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray today that we would really allow this text to weigh on our minds and on the way that we live our lives. We'd really take seriously what John the Apostle is saying to us, and we would do the math to figure out how this applies in practice to our daily lives, and then we would live it out. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us today in power, that we would be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment because your spirit is moving and working in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostle John is writing a sermon-like circular letter. Say that again. He's writing a circular letter that's like a sermon that he's sending out to a network of house churches in turmoil. These house churches are in turmoil because you have false teachers going from place to place and teaching things that are not in accordance with the Christian faith. They're denying that Jesus came in the flesh. They're denying that he's the son of God. They're denying that he's the savior of the world. And beyond all of that, uh, their lives do not reflect the righteousness of Christ and they're not loving people within the church. And so John is writing this letter uh, to warn these churches, but also to give them some tests 
so that they might be able to discern when someone stands before them and begins to teach or preach or prophesy or whatever, that they would know whether or not that person is from God, but also to test yourself so that you might see if you belong to God as well. And in broad categories, you might say that there are three tests of the genuine faith in this letter. Three tests of genuine faith. Number one, the confessional test. The confessional test to believe and acknowledge the truth about Jesus. So on the one hand, this kind of has two prongs on this first one. On the one hand, you've got this doctrinal belief. You've got to believe rightly about Jesus. He's the center of our faith. He's the centrality of the Christian faith. You've got to get Jesus right. Your doctrine on Jesus, on Christ, has to be sound. You have to acknowledge his incarnation. You have to acknowledge the life that he lived, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he's the Savior of the world, that he's the Son of God, that he is the Christ come in the flesh. So on the one hand, you've got this doctrinal knowledge, but also you've got this acknowledgement. That word acknowledge means an emphatic declaration a profession of allegiance. So you are openly, publicly before others saying, I belong to Christ. I commit my life to Christ. I devote myself to Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my Master. And that's just who you are. You're emphatic in that declaration. Number two is a lifestyle test. This is a person who obeys the commands of Christ. You're obedient to Christ. Your allegiance to Christ is demonstrated in your obedience to his commands and the embodiment of his righteousness. Over in chapter 2, chapter 2 verses 3 through 6 it says, "We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him but does not do what he says, do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person." But if anyone obeys the word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. So on the one hand, you profess publicly your allegiance to Christ. And on the other hand, your life demonstrates your devotion and your commitment to Christ. Then number three, the relational test. The relational test, love others as God has loved you. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But these are the tests that the Apostle John has given us. You've basically got to be a Jesus person. Uh, this church needs to be a Jesus church. We must confess the truth about Jesus. We must live the way of Jesus. We must embody the life of Jesus and how we love one another. It's almost like we need to come up with some kind of statement that says, hey, we are here and we exist to show the world the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. That is... Our mission statement, by the way, for those of you who don't know. That's why we're here. Now, I think uh, you should ask yourself before we go any further, if you like John's test. I do think these are litmus tests that he gives us. I think you should ask yourself if you like or if you approve. Typically, we uh, don't really care anything about that list, just so long as someone is a charismatic leader, we'll jump right in behind that person. We'll just do whatever they say. We'll follow them if they're a charismatic person. We'll pay any attention to whether uh, they're living a life of righteousness or whether they are loving of brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We're tempted to do that. And beyond that, sometimes we bring our own list, don't we? We make up our own list. We say, okay, well, uh, you've got to agree with these 75 things before I'm going to count you as someone who belongs to God. And we keep wanting to draw smaller and smaller and smaller circles. But I promise you, if you've got half a dozen Baptists on this stage, you'd get a dozen different opinions, right? Think about it. Do the math. Anyway. Um, Show me someone who gets Jesus right, and I'll show you someone who I want to serve with. I realize we have different denominations. I understand that. And, and yet, if, if I'm in a situation where I can work with someone who's Methodist or whatever, uh, then, then I will. Why? Because if they love Jesus, if I believe that they have given their allegiance to Christ, if I believe that they're living in obedience to Christ, and if I believe uh, that they're someone who's loving of others and they're a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to work with them because they didn't even have denominations when the Bible was written. So we want to work together. And when we get to heaven, they'll find out that they're wrong on baptism, right? Okay? Anyway. All right. The bedrock truth that he's making, God is love. He says it twice. God is love. God is love. Verse 8, verse 16. This is who God is. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God is about, he's explaining it to us. God is light. He said in chapter 1, verse 5. In John chapter 4, verse 24, he says that God is spirit. And here... He says that God is love. And I personally do not believe that you can overemphasize the love of God. You just can't do it. You cannot overemphasize the love of God. So people say sometimes, well, God is love, but... And then you know something really strange is about to come out of their mouth. God is love, but we've got to talk about His judgment. We've got to talk about His wrath. We've got to be balanced in how we speak of God. And we do need to talk about the judgment of God. We do need to talk about the wrath of God. But our goal is not to be balanced when we read the Bible. It's to be accurate to what the Bible says. And the Apostle John himself uses the word love 15 times in the very passage we're looking at. If he's emphasizing the love of God, then I want to emphasize the love of God as well because I want to be faithful to what Scripture teaches. You cannot overemphasize the love of God. God is love. The Bible never says that God is wrath, so you deal with that when you come with it in the Bible, but we need to understand that God's, everything that God does, he does in love. And the wrath of God is even, I believe, driven by his love. Why is God so angry? He's angry at sin. Why is he angry at sin? Because of the destruction that it's causing to a people created in his image. That's why God's angry at sin. He's angry at what it does to his own people. So today we're going to look at four implications of this bedrock truth. I believe uh, that's uh, the main thing that he wants to say. And I really believe that as we come to this section, John is going to tell us what he's really been wanting to say and get around to this entire letter. This is really what's on his heart. This is really what he's wanting to say to this church. And this is really what I think we need to allow to weigh on us and to shape the way that we think, to shape the way that we treat others. Four implications of this bedrock truth that God is love. Number one, 
God has revealed true love. God has revealed true love. If you want to know what love is, don't go read some secular book. Read the Bible and focus on Christ. Notice what it says in 1 John 4, verse 9. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God has shown us what real, genuine, bona fide love is. That famous passage, for God so loved, what we say that, but have you ever really just meditated on those first few words, for God so loved, what it means is to this extent and in this manner, God loved the world. That he gave, that he sent his one and only son. God sent, God gave, God took action. He intervened on our behalf. We call this the incarnation. That's why it's so important that we acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. We affirm the incarnation because the incarnation is about Christ rushing headlong into the world to save us from our own sins. He wants to save us. He wants to make you whole. That's God's stance towards the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The pinnacle moment where God's love was displayed according to this passage was in sending his son, his son dying as the atoning sacrifice on the cross. In John chapter 13, verse 31, referring to his crucifixion, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. In what way is the cross glorifying God? Because it's on the cross that we see the very heart of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look to the cross. This is the heart of God. So much does he love the world, so much does he love you, that while we were yet sinners, Christ, God proved his love for us in sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. The atoning sacrifice. Propitiation is what it says in some of your translations. This means he came to appease the wrath of God. He came to remove our guilt and make us clean before him. This is what it means when we say God loves you. It's not just a nice thing that we say because we, it makes us feel good. It's an action that God has taken on our behalf in order to redeem us and save us. The incarnation, the life, the death of Jesus, which is the gospel. In all of this, God's proving his love for sinners. This is a father seeing his son while he's still a long way off. And rather than cutting a, 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 a hateful eye at him, he runs to the son. Son hadn't had a chance at that point to say anything to the father. The father just ran to the son. That's God's heart for the world. Did you know every morning you wake up, the God of the universe wants to meet with you? He wants to have fellowship with you. Some of the most um, piercing pictures over the course of COVID have been these, uh, some videos that were made of uh, older couples who had been married a long time 
and for whatever reason in COVID, they, they got separated and they'd been, hadn't spent hardly a day without each other, but for the situation of COVID, they were separated for a period of time and one was in the nursing home, maybe and one was out and they couldn't see each other. And you can go online and you can spend hours crying over this to, to watch these reunions of them coming back together, so glad to see each other. One older lady, she almost tripped getting to her husband, trying to push her walker out of the way because she was so excited to see her husband. There's one example. There, there's a picture of this husband who sits outside a window and talks to his wife in the nursing home. Through the window, he couldn't go in, but he wanted to see her. He wanted to have fellowship with her. And all of these are, are just reflections of the love of God. God's the one sitting at the window wanting to meet with you every single day. Do you meet with him? God is love. God is the purest, most powerful, most beautiful display of love in the world. You can't earn it. It's not something you perform to get it. It's when he sees you a long way off, he runs to you and you receive it. You accept it. Implication number two, God's people love in the same way God loved us. God's people love in the same way God loved us. Look over at chapter 4, verse 11. It says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, since he loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. And then down in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So God's love is revealed in Jesus Christ characterizes, and it characterizes his love for his people. We can't make up our own definition. We, we can't reduce love down to just an emotion or a feeling. It uh, includes that, but it's about action. God's love is self-giving. It's sacrificial. It's action-oriented. It counts others as more important than self and looks out for the interest of others. We are told in the Bible to have the mind of Christ, to have the mind of Christ, to see the world through the compassionate eyes of Jesus. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be uh, exploited for his own personal advantage. Instead, he, became a ser- he, be- he took on human form and he became a servant. He didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus washed his followers' feet and he said, As I have done to you, so you go and do likewise. Do people take advantage of God's love all the time? I remember, uh, not this church, another church I was at, have kind of like what we do with the food pantry, but had it for Thanksgiving. And someone made the comment to me that, well, you know, you just wonder if all of these people really need the food. Because some drive up in cars that are nicer than mine or whatever, and so they made that comment. And I said, well, of course not. Of course not. We're going to get burned if you love people. It's just going to happen. But you love and you overflow in generosity because that's what God's done for you. And how many of us have taken advantage of God's love? If you want to turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. The church at Corinth really struggled with this idea of love. I want you to imagine um, what we had. Uh, it was told that we had someone here at like 2 a.m. 2 a.m. on a Wednesday morning 
waiting for food. Because they're hungry. They, they, they were eager. They wanted to make sure they got food. People in the Bible, many times, were very poor. And I want you to imagine a situation where someone like that shows up to church and there's a clique over here in the corner and they are indulging themselves, overeating, and drinking to the point of drunkenness. And they won't give any to the person who shows up without food. I just want you to imagine that dynamic. That dynamic. Read 1 Corinthians 11. That dynamic was happening in the church at Corinth. They weren't loving each other. And we're not reading 1 Corinthians 11 right now, but I'm just helping you to understand the dynamic. But in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give All I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He uses uh, what pagans used when they would gather, this uh, resounding gong or clanging cymbal. He uses that to describe a church who gathers where love is absent. He's basically saying to them, if you operate, if you function in ministry without love, you are no different than the pagans down the street. You gain nothing. It counts for nothing. All of this, anything that we do, if we're not motivated and driven by love, we get nowhere. We're on spiritual zero. It's in neutral. We're not going anywhere. But he defines love in verse 4. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, we read this at weddings to describe the nature of the relationship between a husband and wife. This is describing the relationship between brothers and sisters who gather for worship on Sunday morning. This is the dynamic we are to have. This is the dynamic any church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to have. So John's main point in this section is to say that God is love, and based upon that reality, based upon that truth, we should love one another. 1 John chapter, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 11, that's the start of this entire section. And he begins by saying, for this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. And then in our passage today, in our text today, verse 7, this is the heading of everything that he says. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. We love because he first loved us. Implication number three. Implication number three, God's presence is experienced. In loving community, God's presence is experienced in loving community. Notice what it says here in chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. They had a group of people. He's not saying this for no reason whatsoever. He's saying this because people were actually claiming to have seen God. These Gnostics or some form of Gnosticism in that day, you had a group of people claiming to have special secret knowledge of God, that they had seen God. 
They had some kind of vision, some kind of interaction with God, and they had this elitist mentality that they knew the truth, they had the knowledge, and that allowed them to not live according to the teachings of Jesus, and that fueled within them a disdain for other people within the body of Christ. He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. When we love each other, God abides in us. His redeeming presence rests on our church when we love one another. False prophets might have claimed to see God, but you can experience God in a church where there's Christ-like love. Show me a, we love one another church, and I'll show you a church where there's the life-giving experience of the Holy Spirit. God's presence rests, abides, remains, lives in these kinds of communities. And it's a taste, I believe, of heaven on earth. Whatever you think heaven's going to be like, I believe that while we're here on earth, we're supposed to start practicing and getting ready for that. We're supposed to be working that out here in the body of Christ to where when someone walks into our community, they walk into a place that reflects the culture and the nature of heaven. And there's no greater virtue in that sense than love. But let's look at the opposite for just a minute. Let's take our medicine and let's consider what happens when the opposite takes place. In chapter 4, um, verse 20, it says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. What do kids say when they get in a fight or something and you walk into the room? What's the first thing that comes out when you walk in there, there's a fight taking place and he started it, right? You, you knew the answer. You knew where I was going. That's what we say. He started it. They started it. Have you ever thought why that's relevant? Like, What does that even mean, that they started it? Well, if we were to spell it out a little bit more uh, and, you know, uh, be a little bit more specific, could you be more specific? They might say, my sibling is the impetus behind and the real source of this bitter infighting that we are experiencing right now. <laughs> right? So they're saying that they started it, so they're the source. They're the driving force behind this conflict, not me. I'm just reacting to it. Show me people where... They are mean-spirited, hateful, self-righteous, condescending, bitter. And I'll say the devil started it because he's the spirit behind that kind of behavior. He's the spirit behind that kind of behavior. That's, what it, that's the point he's trying to make in chapter 4, verse 1. Test the spirits. Why? Because anybody who stands to speak before you, there is a spirit behind them driving them. There's a spirit behind you driving you. And it's either the spirit of the Antichrist or it's the spirit of Christ. It's either the spirit of truth or the spirit of falsehood. What spirit is behind? 
Now, praise God, there's a loophole here that um, you can be as mean-spirited, arrogant, condescending as you want to be, so long as you're on social media talking about politics. Yeah, we laugh and then, mm, you heard that at the end, right? Because this stings. And we say, well, I'm defending what I believe. You should defend the faith. You should defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you should do so with gentleness and respect. A few years ago, I was online with an atheist friend of mine and made the mistake of trying to have a conversation on social media. We were having a good conversation, me and my friend, and about, I can't even remember what it was about, but we were going back and forth. We were having a, a nice conversation. Then some of his atheist skeptic friends jumped in, and they started being mean-spirited and insulting and saying things about me, and my atheist friend got on and chided his friends, his atheist friends, to say, you need to speak you need to maintain respect. Thankfully, some Christians jumped on and did the exact same thing as the atheists were doing. They began to attack my friend. They began to attack his other friends. Folks, there ought to be a distinct difference between the way that we treat people and the way the world treats people. Anybody can love people that loves them. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to pray for those who persecute us. We're called to love one another. Why? Because God is love. I'm convinced that one of the most offensive things about Jesus is his love. I think a lot of, I think a lot of Christians, like if Jesus were just to pop onto the scene and he were to walk around for a few years, I think there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who wouldn't like him by the end of those three years. Because the first thing Jesus would want to do would be to call Zacchaeus down out of the tree and go over and eat at his house. The first thing he'd want to do is to go over to the house of a socialist or someone who supported Biden or Trump or whatever, and he'd want to sit down and eat with them. Why? Because God so loved the world, not just the people that you like, but everybody. What do you think this means? God is love. And it kills me. God has put us here for a great commission cause. And I can't think of many things more destructive than treating people who don't know Christ like they're foolish or idiots because they don't agree with you on some other issue. That is not what we are here to do. Okay, I'm over it. We'll keep moving. Can you imagine being in the disciples of Jesus his disciples, you have Matthew the tax collector and you have Simon the zealot. Matthew the tax, collect, tax collectors worked for the Roman government. They worked for the Roman government and they, in their practice, generally oppressed people. There's a reason that it says Jesus hung out with sinners, but it doesn't just say sinners. It labels out a special class of sinners, the tax collectors and sinners. And then you've got zealots, and a zealot would just as soon kill a Roman as look at him. And they're both in the group of Jesus' disciples. And you just have to wonder what their sleeping arrangement was like when they went and camped out. If I'm Matthew, I'm like, I'm sleeping next to Jesus. 
to protect me from Simon. But they stayed in his group. They were his disciples. Why? Because they had Jesus in common. That's what we have in common is the Lord Jesus Christ. Take me to a church that radiates with the love of God, that's overflowing with God's grace, and I'll say, God started it. He's the one that started it. His Spirit is the one behind that kind of church. We have so many people today deconstructing in their faith. They go off to college and then they deconstruct. They're sick of church. Church ought to be a place where people can reconstruct their faith. Where they can walk through these doors and they've got the ability to work things out in Christian love and, be, and know that people are going to love them. People are going to walk with them. People are going to be honest with them. People are going to speak the truth in love. But this ought to be a place of renewal and redemption. Implication number four. God's people are ready for judgment. God's people are ready for judgment. Notice what he says. In chapter 4, verse 12 again, he says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. In verse 17... It says, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. When we love other people, God's love reaches maturity in our congregation. It serves its purpose. God's love has a purpose. God's love, remember, God so loved the world, what did he do? He took action. He's on mission. God's love drives us to mission. When we're loving one another, when that's the, the dynamic in the body of Christ, then God's love is serving its purpose. It reaches completion. It reaches perfection. Jesus' name is hallowed. His will is carried out. Jesus' self-giving love is embodied amongst God's people. And I really do believe that it's a taste of heaven on earth when that happens. But notice he talks about confidence on the day of judgment. When you're prepared, you're confident, you're bold, you're ready. Those who are consistently living in faithfulness to the Lord are ready for him to return. There's some people in this room, you're just eager for Jesus to return. You're not afraid of it. There's no fear in this kind of love. You feel you've accepted the love of God. You, you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're loving your neighbor as yourself. Sure, you're going to stumble. You're going to trip along the way. But that's the overall orientation of the life that you're living. And so you're ready. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. You're ready for his return. You can't wait for his appearing. Because you want to see Jesus. You you want to see him face to face. We see dimly now. You want to see face to face. I'll tell you a story to to close out. Um, In uh, college, uh, the semester after I met Sarah, let's just say I wasn't really all that interested in academics for about a semester or two, okay? Uh, so there's uh, the lost year of Jared not really caring too much about college. Uh, you know, I was a little bit distracted. I was taking this history course, and 
in this history course, I basically had bombed every exam to where when I got down to the last exam, I needed to have a 95 plus to get a D in order to continue on. Some college students are like, yes, amen. That's, that's some of their plans. Anyway, so, so I, I study. I, I mean, it was one of those late nights at Waffle House or wherever, and I'm studying. And man, when I showed up the next day, that section in the book, I was a bona fide scholar on that topic. Okay, I'd studied it, studied it, studied it. And so I go into class, and, and uh, the teacher uh, gets the, the exam out, and she gets it out, and she puts it in front of me, and I sit there, and I look at it, and I didn't know the first one. I look at number two. I didn't know number two. I look at number three. I didn't know number three. I didn't know any of it. And so I'm sitting there for about 30 minutes just sweating. Just I'm red. I don't even know what to do. I'm embarrassed at this point because I'm not going to pass this class. And I just happen to look around and notice a few other Brothers and sisters in the room had the same expression on their face. One of them had the boldness to ask about it. And as it turns out, she said, yeah, for those who needed this final exam to pass, I gave you an exam over everything we've learned up to this point in class. And so you're not going to get the same exam as everybody else. So, you know, I guess I just go that I didn't know any of the questions and, and I'm Call Sarah, tell her what's going on about halfway back. And I just thought to myself, no, that, that, can't, that can't be the way this ends. Now, I start heading back, and you need to understand, I'm, I'm still in the early stages of development. I'm still baking in my sanctification at this point, okay? Uh, but I walk in her office, and uh, I say, ma'am, I heard, I heard what happened, and uh, I would like to take the same exam that everybody else took in your class. And she said, well, I'm not going to give it to you. And I dropped my books down. I sat down. I said, well, I'm not going to leave until you do. And that was probably not a nice thing for me to say, but that's what I did. And so I sat down. We have a dialogue. Uh, she says, you know, you're going to pay the price for not studying. And I said, ma'am, if you would look at the grade book, I have paid the price for, those, uh, for not studying. And she said, well, do you think that you're going to get a 95 plus on this? Because that's what you need. She had done the math at that point. She said, that's what you need to even pass this course. I said, give me the exam, I'll make 95 plus. And she said, you seem rather confident. I said, I'm ready. She gave me that exam, I come back. She said, come back in 30 minutes. 30 minutes later, I come back and I made a 98 on this exam. Now, I had something for that final test that I did not have for any of the other tests. Confidence. I had studied, I was prepared on the section that I studied and I'm like, if you test me over this, I'm going to nail it. And I did. Now, my point is, one day, Jesus is going to come back, and John is giving us some tests. He's giving us some things to check our heart to see, hey, are you believing the truth about Jesus? Are you publicly acknowledging Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life? Believe, uh, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says in Romans 10, 8, 10, 10, 9. Is that true of you? Is that something that you've done? Is it true if we were to uh, examine the way that you live your life, that you're embodying the righteousness of Christ, that you're growing? I cringe if I go back to Jared in 2002. I just cringe to even meet that brother, okay? I don't, I don't even want to go back to meet him because God has worked on me since then. And I'm not 
where I'm going, but praise God, I'm not where I once used to be. Are you embodying the righteousness of Christ? Are you growing in Christ-likeness? And number three, do you have genuine, heartfelt love for others? Do you love others as Christ has loved you? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. I just want to give you a moment to think, to examine. Are you someone who belongs to God? What spirit is the driving force in your life? Oh, gracious Father, I pray today that I pray this has been helpful. Some of this is painful. Because sometimes it's so hard to love in the way that you, the breathtaking way you've loved us. It's hard to even imagine that you would be a father running to us in our waywardness with compassion in your eyes to bring us back in. So, Father, I pray if there's any person here today that doesn't know Christ, that they would turn from their sin and they would receive your love and faith, that you would change their life forever. Pray your blessing over this time of response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. The altar's open. If you want to come trust in Christ today, if you want to uh, follow through believer's baptism or join our church, or maybe you should need to come kneel at the altar and say, God, search my heart. See if there be any wickedness in me. Lead me in your way. Whatever the Lord would lead you to do this morning, I pray that you'll be faithful to obey him right now as we respond.